Today on episode number 376 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dan Levy's back. This time we talk about on improving our teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dan Levy has been a faculty member at Harvard University for over 15 years, where he has held various positions related to promoting excellence in teaching and learning. He currently serves as the faculty director of the Public Leadership Credential, the Harvard Kennedy School's flagship online learning initiative. He co-founded Teachly, a web application aimed at helping faculty members teach more effectively and more inclusively. He's won several teaching awards, including the university-wide David Picard Award for Teaching and Mentoring. Dan is passionate about effective teaching and learning and enjoys sharing his experience and enthusiasm with others. He recently published the second edition of his book titled Teaching Effectively with Zoom, which I highly recommend as a side note, and you can find more information about in the show notes. Dan's teaching was recently featured in a book called Invisible Learning with David Franklin, and I've had a chance to interview David Franklin previously and also recommend checking out David's book, Invisible Learning, and that episode. But for now, let's connect with Dan Levy. Dan, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you very much, Bonnie. It seems like forever ago that we first had an opportunity to connect. What have you been up to in the last year? Uh, thank you. I think the last time we talked, I had just published the book Teaching Effectively with Zoom. And um, since then, a few things have happened. Uh, one of them is that I got to teach on Zoom much more than I had prior to the writing of the book. And the way I like to describe the experience, it's much easier to write a book about how to teach on Zoom than to actually have to teach on Zoom. But I learned a lot in the process. And I think we all collectively learned a lot about how to do this better. So so in, in some way, the first edition, I hope, was helpful to, to people that wanted to know, OK, how do I do it? And earlier this year, I published a second edition to try to take into account some of the things that I, I was learning from other educators to incorporate more perspectives and to incorporate some of the features that Zoom has added to the to their platform. I am going to totally rip off a question from two podcasts. Uh, I've, I've heard this question be asked on Ezra Klein's podcast and also on my own husband's podcast, which is called Coaching for Leaders. Dan, what have you changed your mind about in the last year or two about teaching? Thank you, Bonnie. I um, I love that question. And I have been reading a little bit about how we should not attach or beliefs to our identities. So I'm, I, I think it's, it's good to be flexible and not to try to 
feel like you have to believe the same thing that you used to believe before. I think in terms of teaching, I would say a few things have changed. One, maybe not a, a very stark change, but I think has had profound implications for how I, I approach teaching with Zoom, which is that of the channels in which we have our students participate in a Zoom class, the things that I am pretty, uh, I believe now to be true, are that there are two channels, that is our students writing through chat, or students working together through breakout groups, where I believe that online works better than in the in-person classroom. I think we can all sort of agree that there are so many things that work better in the in-person classroom than online. But these two things have really changed my mind in terms of how, not only how to teach more effectively using Zoom, but uh, now that some of us are going to attempt to return to an in-person classroom, my brain is constantly thinking, is there any way that I could bring some of that thing that I was doing in Zoom for these two features into the uh, physical classroom? So that, that has been a, an important shift. And I would say if, if, I, if I could take a, a step up in a physical classroom before COVID and before we all sort of had to teach with Zoom or similar software, I don't think I was as deliberate and as conscious about what are the different ways our students can engage in our class. I defaulted to the verbal as a way to engage with our students. And now, the, um, because in Zoom, it's so important to engage in these other ways. Now, if hopefully we go back to the in-person classroom, I'm hoping to keep that frame of mind. Okay, what, what is the best way our students can engage? Can they, is it speaking? Is it writing? Is it voting? Is it working in groups? Is it sharing their work for this pedagogic goal that I now have uh, for this part of the class? As I was reading the second edition last night, I was struck by this and, and, and what, exactly what you just shared. And this idea, too, that you write about where we, we think that it's about covering the material and as soon as you have a lens for recognizing, how, how do I even know that learning's happening? And it's very rarely actually going to be happening, but how would I know? My first job out of college was teaching computer classes, and this is back a day or two ago. And I can recall, I, would, my, I became a manager fairly soon in, in my career, so then, I, then my job became teaching other teachers. And right. I'd, I'd be sitting in the back of a 24-person computer classroom. You know, this is back in the day with giant monitors on all the desks, so I can see the monitors. Yes. But the instructor would stand at the front of the room, and they would say, are you all with me? And I could see that hardly anyone was with them, but they would just plod right along, you know. And so what you're describing, Dan, is, and, you, and when you talk about the affordances that I can see so much better now how they're That's engaging, right. what they're thinking about in pretty magnificent ways that right. when you're teaching a computer class might have been possible if you went to the back of the room. <laughs> but this is this almost just sort of negates all of the back of the room, front of the room ideas in my mind. Right. Right. Well, if I can say if you had asked me the question, what have I changed my mind in, instead of the last year or two, the last 10 years or or so? I think in, in teaching, I would have said that the main thing is I 
no longer trust myself to know how much my students are understanding and following. And my mantra is I can be rather clueless about this. And therefore, I need evidence of that happening all the time. And that evidence can come in the way of students voting. So we know what what they're thinking on a particular questions. Students writing in the case of chat, where you ask a question and see what is on their mind in maybe a less structured way than a vote. Or when they work in groups, students documenting what they are producing. And, uh, you know, I, I have this experience that happened many years ago when, when I was experimenting with polling and asked a question, gave the students a poll in an in-person classroom. It was a question that had a right answer. And if you had asked me before launching the question, what percent of my students would get the right answer? I would have said, well, this you know, this is a warm-up question, at least 80%. And when, when the results came back, I think it was probably one of the only moments in my entire teaching career that I stayed one minute paralyzed in silence in the front of the room because I could not believe how far reality was from my beliefs. What you're reminding me of so much has to do, yes, with learning, but also with biases. And I remember yes. way back I had, this is gosh, back on episode 23. So this, this, I can't, this would have been 2014, 2015. I had someone named Jay Howard on the, the show and he introduced me to the term civil attention. So yes. we talk so much about, you know, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. But sometimes we talk about it. I mean, we, we, I don't think people do it intentionally, but they're really talking about faking it. You know, that I have a smile and my eyebrows are up and I'm showing you right. that I'm interested. But even that doesn't really work for just how interested someone is in your what you whatever you have to say, because some of us, myself included, by the way, I was in my colleagues. When you're on Zoom, your face is right there. So apparently, Dan, I don't know if you're aware of this about me, but I apparently have a really good ability on my face to look like I'm interested when I'm completely checked out. So apparently, I learned that somewhere along the way. I don't know who I learned it from. But yes, I mean, that's that's so powerful. Um, the the yes. other thing that I really want to be able to explore with you today requires a little bit of background for anyone listening who may not know about it. So before I ask you my real question, could you give us a little bit of a brief review for some of us or an overview for some of us of this thing called backward design? What is it and where do, where do we bump into something called backward design? Sure. So I'm going to give you my perhaps own interpretation or own uh, view of how I implemented in my own teaching. I'm sure there are um, experts out there that, that know more about this than I do. But uh, the basic idea, and this is the, the thing that was most powerful for me the first time I heard it, is that we, we at least initially when we start teaching, we tend to approach the class with the, the frame of what is it that we're going to cover in this class? What material, what subjects they are there? And this, you know, the way we build our syllabi reflects that. It's, it's about content. It's what is it that we are going to talk about in this class? And the, the thing that was most powerful for me about this backward design framework is to think 
about the class or the course or whatever learning experience you have in terms of what is it that you want your students to be able to do or master at the end of that learning experience. And it sounds super obvious. I guess it wasn't that obvious to me when I first heard it, but it completely changed my mind and the way that I think about teaching. So if you think about what is it that you want the students to be able to do at the end of class, you design the activities in class to help make that possible. And then very important, you find ways to assess whether that actually happened. And I know it sounds super simple, but I don't know that we are as good at doing that as I think we ought to be. And I include myself in this. The struggle that I see, there, I see struggles in every area, both for myself and for other people. But in this particular moment, I see more people emerging in their ability to think about those learning outcomes. And I yes. and we're having we and we have had on the podcast lots of conversations about assessment and how do we design assessment as authentically as we can and we're thinking about context and all that. So there's a lot of conversation there. Not as much conversation. And I find myself, I, I want to admit that this is one of those things I just do, but I don't always know how it is that I'm I'm trying to really when I'm doing it recently slow myself way, way down to go, what is it that's happening in your brain right now as you're designing these activities? So that's the real question I'd love to learn from you, because yeah. whether it's talking to you, Dan, or reading the book, Invisible Learning, about your teaching, I know you're so good at this, but how do you do it? How do we design these activities? You, you mentioned experiences. How do we do that? Um, thank you. Thank you for s such a, a nice comment, uh, Bonnie. I, I, what I would like to suggest is one way of approaching this is to think about what is the background of your students in the topic that you are trying to teach? What is it that they know? What might be misconceptions that they might have? And to try to design the learning experiences students don't come with blank mental slates, right? They, they come with ideas. Not all those ideas will be necessarily right or consistent with the evidence or with what you're trying to teach, but they'll come with ideas. They come with mental models of how the world works. And so if you can try to think about what is it that they come up with to the class, and how can I engage those mental models or those ways of thinking so that in some cases they have to face that those mental models don't work or are not consistent with sort of the skills that you are trying to teach. And I know this is going to sound not so good, but in some way, part of your job is to help students on many occasions see that their model their view of the world is, is not right. And accompany that, accompany them in that realization and help them build better mental models on whatever it is that you're trying to teach. The difficulty I find as a teacher is that it, I think it's hard to know what, with what ideas, with what preconceptions, with what mental models they come. And this is where I think two things are important. Before class, if you can engage them in 
an online activity or some form of activity where you can collect some evidence of where they are. So sometimes it can be something as simple as a couple of questions. You know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? If you can collect that before class, then you come to class with at least an idea of where they are. And so that's, you know, the blended learning kind of approach. You, you sort of see where they are and then adapt to the class. But even if you can't do that, to make sure that early in class or, or at least frequently in class, you test your own gut in terms of where they are and how much they are learning. So that to me is kind of a, is, is maybe if I could have a meta way of putting this is, you know, what is important is what your students are learning. That sounds obvious. And therefore, the only way you can be effective at that is to be able to monitor what's going on in their minds, both before, during, and maybe after your learning experience. I've been thinking about our conversation all week, and it came up even when listening to the T for Teaching podcast. They interviewed Doug McKee, who is part of the Active Learning Initiative at Cornell. And yes. one of the things he says in that interview, is, which I think everyone needs to hear this, was that the research they found, and I'm, I'm going to completely oversimplify here, so I apologize, Doug, if you ever listen to this, I'm sure I'm going to get part of this wrong, but they were talking about how they're designing all these initiatives and they're really measuring this is the scholarship of teaching and learning and they've got their yes. essentially control group although I don't know if that's formally what they called it but in my mind that's what it was we don't mess with it at all and we measure here and then yeah. we and then we measure the next term or semester and see what happens and what he said and again oversimplifying is they don't really see the uptick until the next time so they're learning and I I don't know if I'm quite defining this correctly, but oftentimes this is called double loop learning. Chris Argerus is the person who coined the term double loop yes. learning. I'm sort of extending the the definition that he uses, but I, I think people need to hear that, Dan, that it's not like you wake up one morning and you go, you know what, I'm going to change this all up. And then you're done and, and you've accomplished, you're a superhero and you've accomplished it and you never look at it again and you're on to the next oh. thing. Would you talk about your teaching as iterative because I think that will be helpful to people. Yes, in some way it relates to your first question, right? What what is it that we have changed our minds? I mean, you asked it about teaching, but about anything. I just in terms of iterating with teaching, I think it's like any skill. You can always get better at it. And for me in particular, one way in which I try to get better is by collecting feedback on where the students are, both in terms of understanding, but in terms of how they are receiving the learning experience. And so, you know, sometimes that translates into a scholarship of teaching and learning kind of project, but often is, is maybe a bit simpler than that, maybe not as scientifically rigorous, but, but you can sometimes I think the, my simplest and fa most favorite example is when so many of us use a one minute paper at the end of class. And so we just, you know, give a piece of paper and zoom. It's a lot easier. You just ask them to type things in the chat and you just ask the students, you know, it varies, but in essence, one version of the question, what did you learn today? What, takeaways you had, or maybe one, one point of confusion it is. And the thing that's most striking to me 
is that if I think before reading that, if I think, okay, what is it that I think it's in their mind? It rarely is what is actually in their mind because, you know, students, you know, they're different people who have different ways of processing. And I think if we don't, if we assume that whatever we thought to accomplish, thought to accomplish actually got accomplished, I think we can make much less progress towards being better teachers than if we confront the reality of, okay, you know, end of class, this is what they are telling me they have learned or they have gotten. And it's very, very powerful. And I'm not saying this like, oh, I thought they learned a lot and no, they didn't. No, no, that's not at all. It's what is it that they latched on to? You know, yesterday I was giving a, a, a workshop on teaching with Zoom. And, you know, there were lots of things that happened in that workshop. And when at the end of the workshop, I asked, so what were your key takeaways? One that came consistently was one that I, it wasn't even part of the teaching plan. It wasn't even in the, in what I was expecting to do, which was the use of silence as a powerful tool in your teaching. And um, I said it casually. It was a one and a half minute exchange with a participant, but yet, you know, that's what, I don't know, 15 or 20% of them reported at the end was a key takeaway. That, that was important information for me that I would have never been able to assess or know about unless I asked them, okay, what is it that you took away? So that is a, you know, not a scholarly research paper, uh, but is a way of assessing what happened and hopefully sort of make it better the next time. Yeah, those serendipitous things that happen can often be the most impactful. And we can't Absolutely. we can't plan for them in terms of lesson planning, but we do plan for them in terms of how we approach our life and our work. I mean that that oh. those are the kinds of things. Your your silence is both a representation of your care, that it's not just only your voice that matters in a classroom, that that you do care about hearing other people's perspectives and how they're taking things in and experiencing them. So that's that's your character that you bring with you wherever you go. But we also have to learn those habits so that our habits match our values and our character. So not all of us have got the habits down. I have. I, I use something <laughs> called the eight second rule I used way back when I was a computer instructor, because if you ask a question in a group of people and then you answer it for them, you're conditioning them that you don't actually want to hear what they have to Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I, I once had a teaching assistant with an app in the classroom to try to measure my wait time. So how many seconds do I wait after asking a question? Because I was told that we all tend to think that we wait much more than we actually do. And when the student did this, I kind of was like, no, I, I actually do wait. And the student showed me that, no, I didn't wait certainly not the 10 seconds that I was aspiring to. And that was, again, it's a small piece of data collection that's very helpful in, okay, you think you're waiting for 10 seconds after you ask the question, but you're not. And so what are habits that you might uh, be able to 
use to help you. And this is totally unrelated to our broader conversation. But the one tip that I learned from a K through 12 teacher that I absolutely love to to do the 10 seconds is that she told me that she tries when she's asking a question where she really wants to wait for her 10 seconds. She goes to one place in the room to ask that question. And she has already measured before class how far she has to walk for 10 seconds to transpire. And then she asks the question and walks to that point in the classroom. And only then she breaks the silence. And I found that, you know, an interesting technique or a habit that helped her overcome, as you said before, natural tendencies or biases in this case, not waiting for long enough, even though we think we're waiting for long enough. I've, of course, heard about this wait time for many, many years, but never in relationship to someone moving about the classroom. We had a a professor when my husband and I were getting our doctorates who would always walk on the opposite side of the room from the person who was either asking the question or he was asking a question of to be more all inclusive that everyone, this is not just a conversation between the two of us, it would help the person project more. It would, it would encourage them to do that without even realizing it. But no, that's the first time I've heard that applied in that way. That's great. Well, I know that the second edition of the book is just brimming with new examples. And I know that because you solicited them from so many people, you won't be able to mention all of them. But could you just share a few that come to mind where you started thinking, I've got to get get more of this out to people because this stuff is so good. What are some of the creative examples or the really helpful examples you found in this? Sure. So one of the examples came from an instructor in Mexico, Cecilia Cancino. And she teaches finance to her students and uses Excel to teach finance. And I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that you taught uh, in a computer lab, so you could you could already imagine some of the difficulties that she's facing. One thing that I thought was very interesting that she did is that she had the students working groups on some finance calculation in Excel and then had a student present the spreadsheet with the calculations. And then she used Zoom's annotation tools to draw connections between the cells while the student was doing things, and then would allow other students to ask questions also using Zoom's annotation tool. So that, that's something that it's, I was like completely unaware. I mean, I knew about the tool, the annotation tool, but I just didn't know how powerful it could be in a context like this. Uh, Just to mention a second example, one of the features that uh, Zoom incorporated after the first edition of the book, which is now included in the second edition, is that now breakout rooms, uh, a few months have transpired since since, uh, then, but now students can decide which breakout room they go to. And I think that is, in my mind, opens a lot of possibilities that the students can decide you know, what what room to go to. And there are many interesting ways of doing that. But one practice that I found interesting, uh, my colleague, Teddy Soronos at the, at the Harvard Kennedy School, he basically has a, a slide when he wants students to work on a problem that he gives them. And the slide basically says, if you want to stay work in silence, stay in this room. 
if you want to work with others, go to rooms, you know, one through four. If you want to consult something with a teaching assistant, go to breakout room number five. And the idea, or this is just one use, but the idea that in the same class, you can basically have students depending on not just their preferences, you know, it's easy to think about examples. If you want to talk about A, go to this group or B, this group, but about learning needs that you can organize the the groups according to that, I thought was very interesting. Another colleague of mine, Jen Lerner, did the same thing in one of her executive education programs. So here she wanted to create community before class and she encouraged her participants to come in to the um, session before it started. And then basically when they arrived, they saw a slide that just said, you know, if you want to just network with other participants, go to room one. If you want to discuss some cost bias, go to room two. And if you want to discuss heuristics versus systematic thought, go to room three. This just happened to be two of the topics that she was sort of interested in, in sort of teaching the, 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 the students. So it just opens up a lot of possibilities in our own executive education programs. We have had students break into two subgroups and then have one instructor in each room and then swap the instructors. There are a lot of possibilities once you let people decide uh, where they want to go. So that's just like technology. It's a technological feature that wasn't available before, but that's sparked a lot of interesting pedagogical moves. I'm so glad that you brought this example up, Dan, because I was seeing on Twitter this week, there was a lot of chatter around breakout rooms, specifically at academic conferences. And I found that to be fascinating. It depends on the conference and who the presenter is and where I'm at that day. But I can distinctly remember about a year ago attending a conference and then they said, you know, go into your breakout rooms and be sure you turn your cameras on. And I was not... (laughs) position to be I just wasn't prepared for it and if I had been of course there's a lot of benefits to engaging in that way but I quickly went oh no I'm I'm not I'm not doing that and so they were talking about more of um, a similar take on what you just said where yeah you could go into these breakout rooms but if you'd rather stay in the main room you could and I thought well that's really an interesting idea that I hadn't even really contemplated I was treating it in a very dualistic way when really of course you could I mean that kind of makes sense. You could stay where you, you are stay. or you could go. I thought that's, right. that's something I might be experimenting with. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I did just want to highlight one other thing. I really want people to go to your website because this is both a book, but also just a whole website full of resources. And I think you had checklists up there before, but they sure felt new to me because I sure need things like that. I don't always, I've, I've admitted before to not always being great at having sufficient or even existing instruction screens. So before I send you to a breakout room, I should have something both visual on the screen. Uh, A lot of people are putting that in the chat too, so that if, if, if that's needed for people for accessibility reasons, or it's just easier for them to take the information in that way. But I was noticing yesterday that you have some different checklists there so that if I am going to run a breakout, you know, here, make sure that you do X, Y, and Z. And or I, I really found that to be useful. And again, I don't know if that's new or, or you had it there previously. Um, it, it was there from before. I think, I think um, part of, well, first of all, 
I'm a big fan of Checklist, particularly after reading a book that I really liked, oh. the Checklist Manifesto from <laughs> Atul Gawande. And I think I'm particularly a big fan when we have to do the sort of thing that we had to do in the last year, which is all of a sudden learn a lot of new skills where it's so easy to skip a step or miss a step that could be very costly. I mean, not as costly as in the context of a hospital, but the reality is that for example, on breakout rooms, you know, the checklist basically says, you know, as you just said, display in a very clear way and, and also verbally indicate what is it that you want the students to do in that breakout room, very clear instructions. Now, you might sort of say, well, you know, if you miss that, what happens? Well, what happens is students report this is the main source of frustration with breakout rooms is they get there. And they don't know what the instructor is expecting of them. So now all of a sudden you have, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes of class time that are not being used as effectively as they could have just because you forgot that one step. And so the checklists are my attempt to at least help uh, educators be able to not forget that. So, you know, the idea is maybe you have it in, on your desk if you're teaching with Zoom. And, you know, perhaps after a while, you don't need the checklist anymore. But at the beginning, I, I found them to be very helpful. I'm a huge fan of the checklist manifesto as well. And I just find them to be helpful no matter how many times I've done it, because right. then you can just outsource the part of your brain you don't need to free it up for the more creative ideas. But yeah. So this is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendation. And I'm going to just quickly mention a recommendation of some newsletters that are coming out via a platform called Substack. People might be seeing Substack newsletters coming out. There's not that much unique about it other than it's a pretty easy way to get started if you wanted to have your own newsletter and people can have it be paid as a means for income generation or free. It depends. But John Warner has a really great Substack that is called Biblioracle recommends. And if you send him the last five books you've read, he'll recommend what you should read next. And it is such a fun read. Robert Talbert and David Clark started a substack called Grading for Growth. And it's a really a story of their evolution of thinking about grading and the harms that our traditional structures can do and how to really do it with a growth mindset. And so it's all about mastery grading and their own journeys. And it's been fascinating to read so far. Sarah Rose Kavanaugh has a substack called Once More with Feeling. Some of you might remember Sarah for lots of reasons, but one reason she wrote a book called The Spark of Emotion. So she's sort of continuing her learning and thinking about emotions and motivation and neuroscience and teaching. So that's a great one. And I did also just want to mention that maybe you don't want to subscribe to all of those newsletters into your email because, my gosh, our emails are just growing by the day. And so your RSS reader, if, you, if you've heard in prior shows me talk about real simple syndication, I use a service called InnoReader, but there are lots of RSS platforms that are out there. That's a way of getting everything into one place including in many of these services, your newsletters. So rather than subscribe to these different newsletters and have to get more email that I have trouble keeping up with, I get to control the times at which I do this reading. And I have a special email address. I actually have a number of them by category. So is this higher education? Is this digital pedagogy? Is this 
news or whatever, and they all can come into their little categories. And I'm reading it amongst the other things that I'm interested in in those categories. So those are my recommendations. And Dan, I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. Well, uh, first of all, Ronnie, thank you. I, I took notes. I assume this some of these recommendations will be in your show notes. Yes. But I took notes because I'm interested in this particular Sarah Rose. I'm a big fan of her and, and would love to see what that Substack looks like. So my recommendation for today, which I think it's uh, timely given that a lot of us are going to start teaching at the end of August or beginning of September, is an application, an app that we created at a Harvard University called Teachly. And what this, the goal of this application is to help faculty or educators more generally teach more effectively and inclusively. And the way that this app works is very simple or the, let me start with the problem it, it, it tries to solve. When we are in a classroom and call on different students or different students participate, we might not realize the participation patterns that might start emerging in our classroom. Maybe we realize, oh yeah, I always have some of the same students participate, but we might not realize that consciously or unconsciously in our classroom, there might be patterns emerging that perhaps we don't want to emerge. And so the, the app works very simply. It basically allows a teaching assistant or someone to click on a roster where they can click every time a student participates in class. And then the app displays participation patterns by demographics. It also displays how many times students have participated in your class, a little bit of a measure of active learning and so on. And so that allows you to immediately see, okay, um, let me, I'll use myself as an example. Four years ago, when I first, before I started using the app, I discovered that I had 46% of the students in my classroom that were identified themselves as female, but only 36% of the comments in class were coming from female students. And so I didn't know that this was happening. And, um, you know, I started using the, the app and uh, now, you know, my gender participation gap has disappeared. And that's because I had a constant reminder that, look, what's, uh, what's happening. The app also has student profiles that the students themselves submit. And they can basically use those students, uh, instructors can use those profiles to connect with students and see what their uh, background is. The app is, you know, anyone can use it. You just go to teachly.me and uh, teachly is T-A-C-H-L-Y.me. And we are a small group of people who are very passionate about people being able to use this app. Uh, Teddy Soronos and Victoria Barnum at the Kennedy School are kind of the main people with myself that uh, would like, you know, instructors all over the world to be able to use it. Oh, well, I am so excited to learn more about Teachly, although some of us don't have TAs, but I, I, I used to have a colleague who could actually do that. I, I don't think I could. I don't think I could do it. I think I need some support, but I think we could think creatively. You just said it doesn't have to be a TA. I don't know. Would maybe that responsibility rotate among the students in a smaller class? And then. Yeah. It could rotate. There, we also have a better feature where you allow students to record their participation at the end of class. So that's another possibility. But maybe you don't need to use it every class, but maybe have one time one colleague or someone come and sort of 
help you see what patterns might be emerging. Because again, the example I gave, I, I really didn't know. I was I was shocked when I saw that female students were under participating in my class. I, I didn't think that was uh, was going on. I always love the idea of shrinking something down, and you just helped me do it because many people are recording their Zoom sessions. And so yes. you could, not every class maybe, but maybe you a few times a semester go and watch the recording. You could learn a lot about your teaching by doing that in addition to gauging it in this way. So that's really helpful. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dan, I'm so glad that you had an opportunity to come back on Teaching in Higher Ed. And I already today, from talking before we started recording and even now, I, I, can you come back again? Because this has been <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. It's a, it's a pleasure and a joy to be here with you. And I want to thank you for everything that you do for all of us who are trying to become better teachers. Really, really, I know I speak for a lot of your listeners we are so grateful that you bring in week in and week out people to help us and each other become better at our craft. So I'm super grateful to you and super honored by you inviting me to be here as a, as a, as a guest. Well, it's an absolute joy and it's because of people like you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks once again to Dan Levy for joining me for today's episode and talking about the things you've changed your mind about on teaching and other ways that we can engage our students. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been listening for a while and have yet to give the show a rating or a review, I always appreciate you doing that in whatever service it is that you use to listen to the show. And I also encourage you to subscribe to the weekly update. You'll receive the most recent podcast episodes, show notes, as well as some other things that only show up in the newsletter, like quotable words and other resources that I don't mention on the show. Thank you once again for listening, and I'll see you next time.